Hey everyone, this is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and this is our weekly podcast. Hope it encourages you. Hope it makes you want to be closer to Jesus and more like him. Hope you enjoy this sermon. And if you want to know more about us, find us online at woodburnbaptist.org. Good. Uh, good to see you all this morning. Thank you for coming out. I hope you'll do this uh, with us for several days this week. Open your Bibles to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This morning we were getting ready for everything and Ben, our tech dude, said uh, sometimes he feels like he has PTSD when you say the word revival because he grew up a, a, worship, a worship pastor's son. And so Ben spent so much of his life, you know, his dad did revivals, not just in their church, but in everybody else's church. He just went around. Ben spent entire summers in other people's churches in revival services. And uh, I, I can understand how that could get old. Uh, ben said his dad made, you know, a little extra money doing revivals, but then they were always in church and couldn't spend it. Uh, it was uh, hard. Uh, I grew up in church as well, and I remember revival times that came around in the old days. We'd often do them twice a year, um, and a lot of you uh, perhaps grew up the same way. Um, I remember long nights sometimes. I remember good preaching often. Uh, I remember sometimes wondering, was that revival? Was that revival? Because revival always seemed to promise something that was going to be more than just another Sunday morning or another Sunday night. It, it was supposed to be something extra from God, something new. And often at the end of a week of meetings, I wasn't sure we had it. In 1913, at Woodburn Baptist Church, they called the church together for a series of protracted meetings. That's what they called them back in the day. It was revival time. Um, Pastor George Bush was his name, and uh, Pastor Bush preached uh, the revival services that year. Um, they went for 13 days, twice a day. But after 13 days, they called it off because nobody was coming. This is in our church records. <laughs> nobody came. Nobody came. They made a special point in our church records to say it wasn't a pastor's fault. He preached good. It was good preaching. One lady moved her membership from Cedar Grove and Franklin. God bless her. Uh, and it rained all 13 days. So after 13 days, they, uh, they, they called it quits. Um, I guess we could understand that. In 1913, they were probably riding horses to church. I, I don't know for sure. Nancy, were y'all riding horses in 19... I can't, I can't... I don't remember if they were still riding horses. But I know that it was hard, uh, hard to get to church twice a day back in those days. And uh, uh, interestingly, in, in, in 1923, uh, they did the same thing again. Uh, they, they called the church to revival. Uh, twice a day, twice a day, you all, twice a day. Uh, it, that's back in the day when the school next door at Woodburn would, would bring the kids over for revival services in the morning. Uh, I think that's amazing. In 1923, it's the same kind of story. They, they, they tried the meetings. Uh, again, the records show that the weather was terrible. It rained and rained and rained. And so uh, they called them off early and, and said it was good preaching, but, you know, whatever. It, it, it wasn't revival. Um, in 1929, 
Woodburn Baptist Church had revival. And they had revival twice a day uh, for over 14 days. Something like 16, 20, I can't remember, 16, 20, maybe 23 people got saved in that time. People were joining the church. Um, the church was stirred to go deep into the word. And so they began to just read the word of God together when they weren't in church. And the church family, that in that revival in 1929, they read the entire Gospel of John, they read the book of Acts, and they read every single one of Paul's letters, every single word of Paul's letters. The Gospel of John, the book of Acts, and all of Paul's letters, they read that in, in their off time when they weren't in church, and they were in church twice a day. And our church history shows that after that revival, there was a sustained season of deep love and deep unity and deep passion for the gospel. It, revival happened in 1929, but not 1923 and not 1913. How do you explain that? Well, what was different about 1929? Because if you just look at the structure of it, it was always the same thing. The pastor preached. They didn't bring in any evangelists from outside. It was, it was the pastor at the time, and he would preach, and he would preach pretty good is what the records would say. He'd preach. But something was different in 1929. Something happened, and, and, and they were seeking it. They were asking for it in all those previous revival services. And in all of the revival services that you and I have ever sat through, did we not beg God for revival? Did we not want it? I, I don't understand why it is that sometimes we can want it, we can beg God for it, but at the end of any meeting, we have to recognize that we're not in control of this. We don't have revival just because we decide to call something revival, even though we decide to go to church a couple of extra times. This is something only God can do. Something only God can do. But God promises to do this if a couple of things happen, and that's where the verse comes. It's the famous revival verse uh, most revivals I've ever been to in my whole life, we, we would read this verse and we understood that this is how revival comes. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Rod just sang these words, and I remember singing the words to that tune when I was a kid in revival services, but I'm telling you, I don't know that I've ever seen a genuine revival. But this is what the scripture says. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Read these words with me. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins and restore their land. Second Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14. I've been told all my life this is the key to revival. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves humble themselves. I've heard evangelists say that pride will kill a revival. If we come at God proud of ourselves, I've also heard that in the midst of some really great revivals, pride is what killed the revival itself because people began to say, my goodness, look at what God is doing with us. Look at what's happening with us. And then all of a the sudden, they start getting some attention for what God was doing and it becomes more about the people than it ever was about God and pride can kill the whole thing. 
So, so humility is not just how you seek revival. Humility is our way of life. It is the revived way of life. Pride will kill it every time. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Um, prayer is the language of dependence. And so you can always tell to what degree a, a congregation feels dependent upon the Lord but by the way they pray and, and, and by how often they pray. And honestly, if you want to know anything at all about a person's life, all you got to do is listen to their prayer. You can look at your prayer life, and I can tell you anything you want to know about your spiritual life. If my people who were called by my name will humble themselves and pray and, and, and seek my face. I suppose we seek the Lord's face around here. The problem is we seek a lot of other things too. And, and we tell ourselves that we can do both. We can multitask spiritually. So we imagine that somehow we can chase all of these goals and we can have all of these intentions and motivations of our own and also we'll seek God's face and somehow somehow God's going to bless all that but that is really not the way any of this works. We seek his face and his face alone. Everything else grows strangely dim in the light of his wonder and grace. You understand it's the problem with us is that we have way too many things that we're seeking and we haven't yet learned to focus on the only thing that matters. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Is that there? I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins. Uh, if you really look closely at this verse, th that right there is kind of the point, right? God says, I will hear and I will send them revival. <laughs> he will. But you see how revival comes, right? It, it comes when my people, we're not talking about, you know, the world because they're not going to do any of this. And they're not looking for revival, and they need salvation. You know, I mean, that's the only thing the world that can possibly, you know, seek from the Lord is salvation. This is something that's happened with God's people, and God's people have to turn from their wicked ways. I guess that's where humility comes in. That's where all of this comes in, because I am very, very slow to recognize my wicked ways. Man, I can see other people's wicked ways. I mean, I can watch television. I can identify it in the world. I can watch the news and get all upset about the world and how wicked it is. But revival doesn't come because I'm really disturbed about the sin of the world, but I'm really not very disturbed about the sin of the man in the mirror. Turn from their wicked ways. You know what revival has never come in your life and my life? We don't want to change. Revival requires change. If you ever read, you know, the story of, of revival services, you know, the, the moral of the story is, well, you know, they had a, a week or two of meetings, but then everything just went back the way it was. See, see, nothing changed. If nothing ever changes, nothing ever changes. And, and, and at the very end of all of this, revival is change. You have to be seeking change, personal change. 
Your habits in the Bible will have to be different. When revival happened at Woodburn Baptist Church in 1929, this congregation went to the Word. Your prayer habits will have to change. Everything about your life will have to change. If you're going to live a life that God himself is going to ignite, a life that God himself will bless and understand, you're going to have to change. Turn from their wicked ways. Turn. That's a change of life. It's a change of direction. It's not just feeling bad about it, saying a prayer about it. It's a change in your life. Revival is change. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will restore their land. Now, let me ask you, what's the most important word perhaps in that entire verse? What would you say? It's the most important verse. Word, I'm sorry. Most important word. Turn. Yeah, that's a good one. I, yeah, I will hear from heaven. This is what God does. I, yeah. What else? All important words. I'm not playing a game with you. All of these words matter. Restore, yeah, I will restore. I will hear their, heal their land, the King James says. I love that. Yeah. My, yeah, my people, yeah, who are called by my name, yeah. Humble, yeah. Yeah, pray, yeah, seek, yeah. I just want to call your attention to the one word that you probably overlook. Uh, it, it's, it's the first word, it's, it's then. Then. What does then mean? Then. In any sentence, in any context, when you put in the word then, what does that mean? Pastor Tim asked the question, and then there was silence. What does the word then mean? We all got hungry, and then we went for lunch. Yeah, then. Well, what does it mean? Well, what, what does it designate? Yeah, it has to do with timing. It has to do with timing. Then. Okay, so then is a word about Timing. So all of this that is captured in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it's very, very important, but understand that there's a timing to it. So you really have to understand a little bit more about what's happening in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, so that you can recognize the timing here. Because like in everything else, with revival, timing is everything. So then, if my people, so what, what comes before then? Well, you're not going to like it, which is probably why we don't read this. Back up with me. Let's go to verse 12. This is actually words God is speaking to Solomon upon the dedication of the temple. And this is what God says. Verse 12, one night the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this temple as the place for making sacrifices. At times, I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls or command grasshoppers to devour your crops or send plagues among you. Then, if my people who are called by my name 
shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. Understand, then is a very, very important word. So what does it relate to? When is it that all of this stuff is supposed to happen? Yeah, in that moment when you realize that God all of a sudden is having to shout into your life. And if you've lived long enough and walked with the Lord long enough, then you realize sometimes God will have to raise his voice. Some of you are raised by parents and like, you know, no matter what you didn't want, you didn't ever want to hear mama raise her voice because if she did, you know, you never want to hear it and you never want to hear your daddy raise his voice. And sometimes your heavenly father will raise his voice into your life. Why? When? To get your attention. For whatever reason, being sinful people, we have a very difficult time focusing our attention on the Lord. No matter how much we go to church, I mean, church, is, church can be a wonderful place to catch up on your sleep. Act like I don't see y'all. I mean, you know, church can be a magnificent place. I mean, I've had people say, Pastor Tim, you know, I have a lot of trouble sleeping. I'm just thinking, listen, place some of my sermons right there in your bedroom. You know, God has given me a gift. I can speak and people just, you know, it's just part of what I, you know, you're welcome. You're welcome. I can put you right to sleep. I'm just saying that just because you manage to drag your bones into a church building, that doesn't mean that you are humble and praying and seeking God's face. So there are times when God has to get your attention. There are times when you, you, you are driving your life in the wrong direction and God has to bring you back. God will begin to, to raise his voice into your life. And, and, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the, the way he describes those times back in Solomon's day, was, I may have to shut up the heavens so no rain falls. Or maybe grasshoppers going to come and devour your crop, you see, or, or plagues among you. Now, I really don't think in most of your lives, grasshoppers have been the problem. It's been stink bugs. Y'all got stink bugs. God's trying to tell you something with those stink bugs. No, 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 no rain falls. Crops, you know, are destroyed. Plagues. Um, trouble comes. Trouble comes, or, or you feel like whatever you do in your life, you're not making any traction. You're somehow never able to move forward, always stuck. You know, one way or the other, God will get your attention. Now, I'm not saying every time a stink bug crawls across your kitchen floor, the Lord's trying to tell you something, but I do want you to recognize it's never a bad idea to, to ask God if he wants to tell you something. I'm not saying that every time trouble comes that the Lord's trying to tell you it's because of your sin, but honestly, it's not a bad habit just to ask the Lord, just to search your own heart. God, is there something you're needing to tell me? Are you raising your voice into my life? Do I need to pay attention? Because I'm telling you, God is trying to tell you something. He's always trying to tell you something. And if a stink bug or anything else manages to raise your head and turn your eyes back toward the Lord, then I'm telling you, that's a good thing. You've got to learn your desperate need of him. The bottom line is sometimes God will give you distance in order to teach you to reach for him. You ever just had those moments in your prayer life where you feel like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling? You ever actually tried to read the word of God and it's just like reading a dead book? You ever been in those just dry, you know, difficult, dark moments of the soul? 
When it just seems like, you know, God's not listening, God's not moving, God's not seeing you. Why does he do that? Is it torture? No, no. Sometimes God gives you distance to teach you to reach for him because you must learn to reach for him. You must understand that everything that you desire, everything that you require, it comes from him. Sometimes it seems like he steps back, but he's never going to leave you. He's never going to abandon you. He's never going to forsake you. But sometimes I really believe he'll give you distance so that you'll learn to reach for him. You must learn to reach for him because there are things that only God can do for you. Which brings us back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is the most amazing chapter. We pick out that one revival verse there, but, but we sort of miss everything else that happens here. Go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. Just, just this little thing. When Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Somebody tell me why. That's not our revival verse? Why is that not our revival verse? When Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven. What does that mean? Well, you know, it's all written in, in the ancient language of Hebrew, and in the actual Hebrew, what it means there is fire flashed down from heaven. That's what it says. How did Solomon do that? What in the world did he pray? Well, he, he prayed this really, really long prayer that you find in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. I mean, it's a long prayer. And when he finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven. Fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and, and the sacrifices and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Understand, in this moment, Solomon is dedicating the temple. They built a new temple. Now they're dedicating it, and now they're begging God's presence to come and fill that place because they realize that it may be a glorious temple, but if God's presence is not there, it's just another empty house. And they have this amazing altar built. I mean, most of us picture an altar, you know, like the steps at our church or maybe the table that the offering plates used to sit on. But, but no, no, this is a gigantic platform on which they would offer sacrifices and the sacrifices are piled high. But understand, the only thing they can do is bring the sacrifices and lay them there. Only God can light the fire. It's one of the wonderful mysteries all through the Old Testament, this fire at the temple. And it's so interesting to me, and I almost wish that, I mean, I can't say that I could improve on Scripture, but I wish that the Old Testament would remind us more often this miraculous fire that burns at the temple. Because you understand, only God can light it. Only God lights the fire at the temple. You got to go back to the very beginning with Moses in the book of Leviticus, when at the very first moment when the sacrificial system begins, God lights the fire. God lights the fire, and then God tells the people what? Now you keep it burning. You keep it burning, because I'm telling you, if that fire goes out, you can't just pull out your little, you know, Zippo lighter. 
You're not going to just rub some sticks together. Only God lights the fire. So understand, God lights the fire of devotion and worship. It's your responsibility to keep it kindled. All through the Old Testament, this is what the people have to do. That fire can never go out because that fire is from heaven. It may burn on earth. It may burn there in the midst of their worship, but only God can send that fire. But it's the people's responsibility to keep it kindled. The people have to keep it going. Y'all know why that becomes difficult? Very simply, fires go out. They just do. Fires go out. Now, a little lesson here for all of you pyrotechnic uh, enthusiasts. Fire requires three things, all right? It's it's in the Bible. This is just, you know, like science, life. Fire requires three things. What are they? Fuel, uh, something to burn, something something that's got to be set on fire, wood, paper, anything flammable. Wood requires, I mean, fire requires fuel, something to burn, all right? What else? Oxygen. Fire is, you know, the combination of matter with oxygen. Fire requires oxygen. It's got to breathe. If you've ever been in a situation where the fire was smothered out, it it needs oxygen. And then one more thing, heat. Heat. That's kind of confusing me because I think of fire as producing heat. But understand, you can't have a fire begin anywhere where there isn't some outside source of heat. Heat is what fire needs. So fire requires three things, fuel, oxygen, and heat. So let's just be really, really honest. In your life, it's God who lights the fire. It's God who lights the fire of worship and devotion. It's God who lights the fire of passion and desire in you. It's God who brings everything that your soul needs. But it's your responsibility to keep that fire burning. Do you wonder why Woodburn Baptist Church in 2022 needs revival so desperately? Because we have not kept the fire burning. God is faithful. It is we who are not faithful. God is faithful to forgive. We are not very willing to recognize and confess our sins. God is absolutely ready to give us revival, but we will not humble ourselves and put ourselves in the position where we could receive it. God has sent the fire, but we do not keep it kindled. So let's just be be, be plain about it. The, The spiritual fire in your life requires fuel. So what is the fuel? What keeps the fire burning? in your spiritual life. Yeah, I'd I'd start with the Word of God. The, The Word of God. You need fuel. Something has to be feeding the fire, and I would say it's the Word of God. It's just the Word of God. Remember back in 1929 when Woodburn Baptist Church caught fire with revival, they went to the Word. It stirred a hunger for the Word like you've never imagined, and sadly like you and I have probably never experienced. The word of God is spiritual food. And I'm telling you, you don't have a hunger for it until you're actually living a spiritual life. When you begin to do the work of the Lord, when you begin to serve the Lord, I'm telling you, that's when the the, the hunger for spiritual things begins to increase in, in your life. It's the word of God that that feeds the fire. What about oxygen? What's the breath? That's where I would say the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit, the word spirit is the same word for breath and wind. The day of Pentecost comes, it, it's a rushing wind. It is the Holy Spirit that, that breathes and brings the oxygen to our spiritual lives. But oh my goodness, we live a life so far away from the Spirit, from where he moves, from where he breathes, from where he would blow up on us. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, pray. What's your prayer life even like? Often, because we love one another and because of just the patterns of our church, all of our prayers become the same. We just make a long list of sick people. We got sick people we're praying for on 14 continents. We pray for every hemorrhoid. We pray for every ear infection. We pray for every heart broken with psoriasis. We pray, and I'm not making light of that. God heals, and we need to be remembering to pray for the sick. But is that the extent of your whole prayer life? You just make a prayer list of things you want from God, almost like your grandkids make a, a, a Christmas list for Santa Claus. You, you really think that God is just like this, you know, kindly old grandfather in heaven that just wants to give you candy out of his pocket? But prayer is relationship. Prayer is communion with the Holy Spirit. It's not just coming with your list of, of, of wants from God and then waiting to see if he'll give you what you ask for. That, that's that, 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 that's the way that's the way children in the faith pray, but we're supposed to be seeking maturity. But prayer is a relationship with God. Prayer isn't just talking, it's listening. It's not just coming to God and telling about all the sick people like he don't know about the sick people. It's coming before God almost like a soldier would come to the commander and, and, and wait for instructions. You come before God and you surrender to his authority to command your life and then you begin to walk in the ways that he lays out for you. Prayer is so much more than just asking for things. It's the very life of the spirit. And then heat, heat. Interesting, when Jesus speaks in the gospel of Mark, he talks about the very things that would smother out, that would choke out our spiritual life. And this is what Jesus says. All too quickly, the message is crowded out by, say it, the worries of this life, the lure of wealth and the desire for other things so no fruit is produced. This is Jesus talking. Jesus just wants you to understand the things in your life that will choke out your faith, the things in your life that will smother the fire that the Lord has set. The worries of this life, I would think is probably, I don't know your heart, but my hunch is worries of this life is what's getting most of us. I mean, we just worry. We just worry. I know some of you probably chasing wealth, but by looking at you, you missed it. You know? You missed it. The desire for other things, I, I know that we can be as materialistic as, as everybody else, but, but my hunch is right here, the worries of this life. Man, you, you watch the news, you, you have watched the news to the point where you have nearly driven yourself insane. Do you understand you can stop? There was a time in your life when there wasn't 24-hour news, and weren't you happier? Weren't you happier? So go back to that. How about you don't watch another newscast until Walter Cronkite comes on? You know, wasn't everything just better when it was Walter, you know, one time a day? 
worries of this life, you're feeding the wrong fire. You are inflamed with anxiety, inflamed with worry. You don't have to live that way. It's choking out the fire of revival. Don't worry about anything, the scripture says, but pray about everything. You can't worry and pray at the same time. So uh, stop one habit and start the other. All too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things, so no fruit is produced. So uh, it's God who lights the fire. It's the people's responsibility to keep the fire burning. So I just ask you, um, what about the fire that burns on the altar of your life? What would you say about that? Only God can light it. You, you, You can't. By reading your Bible or by coming to church, you can't rub two sticks together and make that fire. Only God gives that fire. But it is your responsibility to see that it burns. What about the uh, fire on the altar of your life? What would it mean for you to experience real revival? If you wanted God to reignite that fire, if you wanted God to do what only God can do for you, then how would you come before him? How would you seek him? How would we ask God to do that for the sake of our church, for the sake of us all? Well, according to Scripture, in that moment, when you realize that the fire is Dying, that the fire is cold when you realize that you've wandered far from home. There's only one way to come home. Scripture says, then, then at that moment, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven forgive their sins, heal their land. The congregation at Woodburn in 1913 had a series of meetings. It rained a lot. Preaching was mm, pretty good. Um, In the end, everything went back to the way it was. And 1923 did the same kind of thing. This time, 13 days, and it rained and rained. Um, Preaching was pretty good. One old lady finally gave up and joined the church just to see something happen. Cedar Grove from Franklin. But uh, in the end, everything went back to the way it was. In 1929, Woodburn Baptist Church came twice a day for two weeks. And the fire came down. And things weren't the same after that. I really want that to happen again. You pray with me?